and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Clint Hartle has been involved with professional baseball for a long time. He played in the league for 10 years, where he played for the Kansas City Royals, the Cincinnati Reds, the New York Mets, and the St. Louis Cardinals. And yet, in this conversation, we don't even discuss his playing career. Instead, we focus more on what life was like for him as a manager. So he was the manager of the Colorado Rockies from 2002 to 2009, where he helped them go to the World Series. And then he went to the Pittsburgh Pirates, where he helped them go to three straight playoff appearances in 2013, 2014, and 2015. And he was with the Pirates from 2011 to 2019. And in this conversation, we talk about transitions and what it was like for him to go from the Rockies to the Pirates. We talk about what it's like to be fired. We talk about divorce in his personal life. We talk about trials and tribulations. And all along the way, it'll become apparent to you that Clint loves to love. He loves to lead and he loves to lead with love in mind. He considers himself to be a transformational leader. He builds his managerial process and philosophy around leading with relationships in mind, and it's really at the core of his essence and his being. Clint also is humble enough to talk about some of his imperfections and some of his mistakes that he's made along the way. So I think you're going to find him to be authentic, to be genuine, to be someone who you want to sit down next to and just have a conversation with. So we go into all kinds of different directions. And at the end of this conversation, I hope you have a better sense of who you are and how you might be able to lead with love going forward. So here is Clint Hurdle. Clint, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. When I asked you, hey, what are you passionate about? And you pretty succinctly said learning. And then we spent the last 10 minutes 
with me trying to teach you how to turn on do not disturb on your computer. And so to see you stay with that and continue to try to learn that uh, sort of spoke to, I think, how you think about learning. And I'm curious for you, though, what was it like to be a manager and figure out when is it that I really want to be in learning mode? And when is it that I need to be convicted? When is it that I need to say, nope, this is the lineup we're rolling with. This is the picture we're going with. You know, this is the time to bunt. This is the time to steal. Because I would imagine that there's a time to learn and then there's a time to be convicted and, and to execute. So if you could put your manager hat on, give us insight into how you thought about learning and, and how you thought about when it was time to be convicted and in time to believe in a decision that needed to be made. Well, you've got my attention with the first question. That's, that's a very good question, uh, albeit lengthy. Um, I'm going to try and replay the videotape in my mind. You're, you're succinct, you're spot on with the fact there is a time to learn and there's a time to, to manage. Um, fortunately and unfortunately, there are game situations that happen when you do both at the same time. You, you have the conviction to make a decision and then you watch it blow up. And then you, you pick up the pieces and try and quickly put something back together and move forward. Um, my learning, for the most part, it started from the time I got to the park. I really tried hard to work on balance throughout my career. I think every year I got a little bit better at it. I don't think I ever nailed it. My wife would be the proper one to ask Carla on when he was home, was he home? And I think she would be able to tell you at the beginning, not so much. And I would tell you, you know, there was times when the first thing I thought about when I woke up was about my day at the park. And so I wasn't present for her. I may not have been present for my daughter, Maddie or my son, Christian. And over time, I just wanted to be, when I was home, I wanted to be where my feet were. So when I got to the park, that's when it was time to learn. And usually there may have been one or two things that happened the game before, which I would jot down and I would put on my desk reminders. Okay, this is what we're, we're prioritizing this first. Maybe that's with coaches. Maybe that's with a player. The good thing about your questions for coaches is they're early. They're always there early. Players, you wait till they come in. Um, and you know it's going to be later a later learning opportunity as with the coaches. It may be with the front office. So depending upon what do I need to learn? Is there anything new out there? What kind of R&D work are we doing? Research and data? What kind of analytics are in play? Because for years, that was never a thing. Probably wasn't until about 2013 that I finally bought in. And that became another part of my day. Um, but the preparation is done early. Once the game starts, I would, I would implore my players to go play. That's why they call it a game. They don't call it a lot of people on TV and now they'll call it, this is a test. Or the other night I was laughing, I'll, a renouncer, I'll, I won't say his name, used the word huge 74 times in a four quarter football game. I don't think there's four, there, there's 74 huge moments within any contest. Um, so you prioritize before you prepare before. And once you get in the game, it's time for me to play. Basically it was time for me to step back, watch, observe, let the game come to me, not force myself into the game or onto the game and let players play, let pitchers pitch, let players play, let hitters hit. And then, and then kind of navigate accordingly. I think to, to finish this up, I think there was times I just, Brian, I need to be a GPS system. You know, Hey, Hey, you're running off the road. You might want to get back over in your lane just reminders. Nobody likes to be told what to do, but the preparation more often than not was done early. Once we got into the game, I just basically it was my quiet time. If that, that can be hard for people to understand, but nobody could get to me. Then I was in my vacuum. I'm watching a game that I've grown up loving and breathing and living. So for however long that game took, I was in that vacuum. And then after the game, there was obviously teachable moments and learning moments, but once I got out of the game, much like we did with this event right here, I tried to hit the do not disturb sign once I got out of the game. Yeah. And learning for you, was that something that you became most interested in as a player, as a manager, as, you know, post managing? Like when was the time when you became most curious about learning and, and acquiring knowledge? I was fortunate. Um, my mother, Louise, always stressed upon me the importance of education, of an education, of going to school for a reason, not to check the box that you went to school and get, you know, he was never absent. She goes, you can go to every day to go to school and still be absent. <laughs> so, you know, showing up physically, that's part of it, no doubt. 
showing up mentally, wanting to learn. And I was fortunate that I kept that mentality from start to finish. And I only have a 12th grade education. Uh, many of the corporate speaking events I've, I, I have the opportunity to speak at, one of the things I'll do to relax the entire crowd is I'll say, okay, how many of you have a degree? How many of you have multiple degrees? And then I go, okay, who here's just, who topped out of high school? More often than not, I'm the only hand that goes up. So I say, the irony here is that I'm speaking to you all and I'm going to help you learn today with a 12th grade education. Um, but I was always just infatuated with learning. Some classes weren't my favorites, but some classes I loved. Um, and one of the people that helped me develop probably that learning mentality along the way was my sixth grade teacher, Dorothy Duncan. You know, back in the day, you had a teacher. She taught all your classes. You know, that you didn't have a different teacher for every class in elementary school. It was one through six. And Dorothy had flaming red hair. She was no nonsense. She could have been a drill sergeant. Uh, but she also had an affinity to challenge me. And it was nothing about any physicality that I could bring to the table. She knew who I was. She knew what I was doing in sports. But that was never the topic. She goes, oh, my job is to make you the best version of you scholastically. So when it gets to the point in time, Clint, you have options because you will find out six years from now when you graduate from high school, how valuable those options are. How do you feel about the phrase old school and new school? Like, how does that, how does that sit with you? I think initially I, I may have gone this up. Um, and then as most of my life, I realized that, you know, either was a couple bad experiences or humbling experiences or why am I doing that? Um, I quickly went from old school versus new school. You know, I actually had to fight. I'd say, how many the young kids that are in school, you know, this in school business, why do we even use the term old school? Why is it still around? Because it works. It has some value in some areas. To hold on to anything just for the sake of tradition probably isn't the smartest move you can make because tra tradition can be a vision killer. Uh, it can be a wonderful thing to honor. It can be, and there's pillars of, 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 of tradition that, that have held true over time. But I got to the point, Brian, I pivoted to the point with each one of those camps because they were real in my industry in baseball. I had a bunch of guys my age who were fighting the, the, the new school, the in school. I, I'm sorry, I just, start, I just started telling people to be in school, not old school versus new school. Let's just all go to school. Let's go to school together because I felt confident that if we could win or earn is a better word, the, the trust of the new school data developers, researchers, analytic guys, we could impart some very valuable wisdom for them as well. And what they could share with us would make us better. So I really thought if we could work toward that hybrid mentality, we all be best served. So it wasn't old school versus new school. It's just, let's all get in school. I love that. It's interesting because we live in a world now, 10 years later, since you said, yeah, I started not fighting the analytic movement and started to accept it. 10 years later, it feels like perhaps we've over-indexed on, on that side of the game. And perhaps, this is a theory, we need to tap back into our gut and what our eyes tell us and the feel. Um, and doesn't minimize the data, but I think too much of anything can be a bad thing and nothing of something else is, also can be a bad thing. As you look at, at the game um, from your view and, and you're helping the Rockies and you're, you're helping them in a variety of ways, but what's your view as we sit here right now where your feet are, as you think about uh, data and analytics and, and how it's perceived and the perception of it in, in the game today? Well, I think you're spot on again. You're a smart young guy. Uh, and I love the fact you used the word perhaps. Um, my history has told me it, throughout my life and in, throughout my life with, with, within groups of men making decisions, uh, even within groups of men and women making decisions, once we've made a tactical error, we more often than not overcorrect. We overcorrect. Baseball got dull. It got boring. We had new minds, newer ownership, newer general managers, and newer can mean younger as well. Younger players, different backgrounds, different experiences. So did they want to revolutionize the game? I'm not so sure that's what they said when they woke up in the morning, but they wanted, they looked at it a different way than I looked at it. It actually 
took upon the the phrase, you know, players became pieces, which is always still kind of makes me my neck jerk a little bit because to me, they'll never be pieces. They have a heartbeat. Pieces don't have heartbeats. Players have heartbeats. And this was an ongoing conversation throughout my time in Pittsburgh with our general manager and one I've had with everybody wherever I've gone because I've heard players use it. Some people, it doesn't bother. Some people, it's no, never mind. For me, I do always fall back, but I want to make sure they understand that's not how I look at it. I look at it as them as players. And we don't, they would say, well, well, how do you, you know, how do you manage your your players? And I said, well, you, you can manage your players by earning their trust first and foremost. Uh, by showing them that you care uh, about them more than just the player. And then that earns the trust where then you're going to wait for an opportunity to coach. And then you show them, you know what, you flat out can coach your backside off too and you can help them get better because the definition of a coach is to get the player better. So I believe we overcorrected dramatically. It became like anything else, contagious. The Pirates in 2013, we were leading the pack with analytics and research and shifting and a lot of things, bullpen leverage. And then the Tampa Bay, you know, Tampa was right there with us. And over time, people caught us and passed us. I just joined the Rockies organization, which is we've taken hard knocks the past few years. We have a limited R&D department, almost non-existent. Now, we've ramped up. We're eight, nine people deep. I see what we're doing now. We are doing serious work in the R&D department. But we're mindful of the fact that it is still a game played by people on the field. It's not a lab experiment on the field when you're playing the game. So I think that goes back to the combination of the two. We are slowly starting to auto-correct. You see the number of managers that have been brought back um, that have older school timelines. Uh, You know, the Atlanta Braves, one of my best buddies, Walt Weiss is the bench coach there. The only staff in baseball made up of all former major league players is that the recipe for success i don't know but it's their recipe one of their recipes for success so i do believe as you said you tie it together um neil huntington my general manager pitched for the whole time would we'd always get to a point where he'd say clint if i can't trust your 45 years in uniform in the dugout i either need to get a different manager i just need to back away that's your domain that's what i've hired you to do and that used to empower me because once the game started, he trusted, trusted me with the game and the experience I had, I had developed in the game through, uh, through failure, through some successes and through the, you know, the managing of people, the connection building and relationship building of people. It's interesting. You mentioned what coaching is and coaches are here to make the players better. And I love the origins of the word coach, which comes from Hungary. Uh, There's a town in Hungary called Coaches Hungary, and that's where the horse and buggy or the carriage or the coach was invented. And you mentioned GPS earlier before we had Waze or Google Maps, you know, we needed a coach to help us get from where we are to where we want to go. And so that is like the whole idea of a coach. And then I went to University of Oxford and they had academic coaches. And then, of course, today we have strength and conditioning coaches. We have, you know, basketball coaches. We have mental performance coaches, et cetera, et cetera. But in all of my emails that I've had, this is year seven of the podcast. And so I've had over 300 guests on the podcast. Your emails back to me were different for one reason. And the reason was at the end of them, you said, love, love Clint. And I'll tell you, I've interviewed all kinds of people. I've interviewed people that are very comfortable with soft stuff and love and you know, we've had on experts of relationships on this podcast. To this day, nobody signed their signature love. And I can tell you for a fact, no managers or coaches, and we've had a lot of them on the podcast, responded with love. And so it was a question that I knew I had to ask you, which is, you know, why why sign stuff with love, uh, love Clint? Like, where, why do that? It, it, another great question. It's something I've been doing for quite some time. It was a, a conversation that started in 2002 when I was brought on to manage the Colorado Rockies. One of the most meaningful relationships I've ever had in my life was with Kelly McGregor, the team president. Um, he helped grow me as a man. He helped grow me as a husband, as a son, as a, as a father. 
as a manager, as a teammate. Um, he was a mentor for me. He was a former collegiate All-American, played some football in the NFL, but he was our team president. And he put his arms around me and he goes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a different kind of relationship that we need to develop around here. And it's one based on love. And initially I was like, okay, that's different. I don't have a lot of experience with that. And it went back to the point of Clint, how, how do you grow a relationship? How do you build a relationship? And at the time, both of us were also engaged in, in a Bible study we went to together. So we had a faith part, uh, a faith, big piece of faith in our life. And, you know, ours was based on Christianity and it was about the, the first two commandments, you know, you'll love me more than anybody else and you'll love your neighbor as you love me. Um, she said, when you can let people know that you love them unconditionally, you don't want anything from it. It's not transactional. It's transformational. He goes, there's no telling where that relationship can go. He says, many will push away. Many don't want it. Many, you know, I can remember the first time I told my dad I loved him. He goes, yeah, me too. You know, I just, people don't know how to respond. So Kelly walked me through this thing about, you know, earning trust. How do you earn trust? You show people that you're there for them. Your hands are open. Your ears are open. Your eyes are open. Podcasts are wonderful. I listen to a lot of them. The only part that's negative for me when I'm on them, I don't learn a whole lot because I spend most of the time talking. I'm, I feel like I'm already winning in this game because you've asked three really good questions out of the shoot. Uh, that I don't get asked all the time. But I think for some people, it at least gets their attention to the word love. And it might be say, well, no, I don't want that. Or well, why does he say love? Or you know what? There's a lot of people that get that now, right? And they know I love them. And they know that it's a safe place that they can go and they can pick up a phone or send me a text or send me an email and either vent, vomit, share. Maybe they're encouraging me. Maybe they just want to know how the kids are doing or my wife or what am I up to? But we build a relationship with a big foundation of love in it, um, not leverage, you know, not leverage. It's not based on title. It's not based on wealth. It's based on the ability to just be, become vulnerable. And, and let's, let's try and build a relationship together that's meaningful and, and worthwhile for both of us. And you've had amazing relationships with the Rockies, with the pirates that you've mentioned. Um, I'm curious though about divorce and I'm going to ask divorce in two ways here. There's a divorce that takes place with the Rockies and you, and then there's a divorce that takes place with the pirates with you. And then in your personal life too, you're pretty open and you've spoken about being divorced twice in those relationships can you talk about divorces and and what those breakups were like for you when I'm assuming they were started with the idea of love and, you know, trust and respect, uh, all of those things? What's it like to go through divorces, whether it's personally or professionally? Fantastic question. When we get to do hard in life and we all get to do it, and I mean by hard is the death of a loved one. Uh, the death of a job, a death of a, you know, or, or something happens to your children. Um, catastrophic type situations that, that's, that, that happen. Um, if you love, they, they, they become, obviously, I think there's a, there's part of them that are, that are more painful because you've exposed yourself, you've become vulnerable, you've invested, but also by the same token, you know, in my two divorces, one from the Rockies, one from the Pirates, uh, there was some common theme. I was with the Rockies, you know, 14 years as a manager and, and major league hitting coach. But from the managerial perspective, I tried to help build a culture and create an environment that was competitive, that was safe, that we built the brand. Uh, we built a standard that we held ourselves accountable to on the field and off the field. So you do all that for seven, eight years and you're a coach for 14 years of your life. And then when you get fired, you know, yelling, kicking, screaming, pointing fingers on the way out, you just shot everything up that you helped try and create. So in Pittsburgh, it was the same thing. 
And actually, I came up with something that I shared publicly. And with a reporter one day, I said, I've learned to honor the exit. Um, as I walk out, I've learned to honor the exit. Um, we have a tendency to be short-sighted. Time passes, memory fades. I got fired. I could come up with 13 reasons why I shouldn't have got fired. And I stopped right there. I said, you know what? At the end of the day, those aren't my decisions. Um, did I give it everything I had? Absolutely in both cases. No regrets. Gave it everything I had. Did we agree on everything? No, nobody ever does. Did they treat me respectfully? Yes, in both cases. It was a hard one in Pittsburgh, just the way it happened and the timing. But again, that's out of my control. And nobody wakes up in the morning, Brian, and say, you know what? How am I going to screw this guy's day up? Can I just blow this guy's day up in the last nine years that he's poured in this organization? Just no. But we as men, we, we make decisions and sometimes they don't, they don't finish well. But I was not going to point fingers or talk in a tone that would be discriminatory, negative, lack of ownership, uh, scapegoating. Not one time, never, in either place. It was time to move on, be thankful for the opportunity. Matter of fact, we went through a period in Pittsburgh that people kept telling us, well, you deserve better. You deserve better. Well, my wife and I went away. We actually came down here. We had a home in Amory. I only came down for five days, just got quiet, turned off the phones, got out of the noise and just said, you know, we got to the point where we said, thank God we don't get what we deserve because look what we got while we were in Pittsburgh. Look at the blessings we received while we we're in Pittsburgh. Look at the blessings we received while we we're in Colorado. And truthfully, there's a shelf life on everything in life. You know, so honor those exits. I'm good with them. The divorces were harder at the time. I was younger. I probably didn't have as much maturity on my side as hopefully I have now. Both women that I married, I married because I felt I loved them. And it hurt dramatically at the end. And the part that never bothered me, my dad can tell you, I mean, he was my best man twice. I told him I wouldn't let him be my best man the third time when I married Carla. I needed to go on the free agent market. I brought in a new guy. Smart. Um, I never had a problem with the division of properties. The div they'd earned it. <laughs> you know, they had been and made sacrifices. That was never going to be a point of contention with me. Um, I felt bad that it just didn't work out the way we had intended it to work out because of the lack in my area, because the other thing I didn't do, I didn't point fingers at the other, either one of my, well, you did not, no. Now that I've grown in my faith, I've grown in my belief, you know what, if I'd have been a better husband, if I'd have been better with balance, if I'd have been better with boundary, not, who knows what would have happened, but it didn't, and this is what happened, how do I learn, how to become better, and how do I still honor them in the ways that I need to honor them moving forward? No kids with my first ex-wife, um, have seen her on occasion, Second, I have a 37-year-old daughter with. Uh, she got married over a year ago. We were at the wedding together. I needed to honor her presence, honor her husband's presence. I mean, it is what it is. Um, it's not, I don't ever say it's okay. Uh, but I do believe there's a part for looking down for me. You know, God just kind of looks on the cloud at me every once in a while. And he goes, testing, testing. How are you going to do with this one? How are you going to do with that one? And there's a lot of them I haven't done well with. And he says, okay, what'd you learn? You know, because I've shared with my players years, there's, there's winning and there's learning. You only lose when you don't learn. You mentioned that relationships or experiences have a shelf life. And someone wise once said to me that emotions have a shelf life. And that really resonated with me because none of us are angry all the time, sad all the time, happy all the time, joyous all the time. You know, emotions have a shelf life and, and they expire. As you think about baseball players and and helping to create, you know, a learning program within the Rockies, how do you think about emotions and self-regulation and the ability for your ball players, and not just them, but also management, and thinking about how emotions play a role in behavior? See, this is my college education going on podcasts for the last three years, because I didn't do it a lot of this when I was managing. And I pretty much turned everything away. I didn't do talk shows. I didn't do a lot of interviews away. I did the stuff I had to show up for because I wanted to stay focused on my job. But I'm learning a lot through different podcasts, the questions I've been asked. You know, emotions 
I used to always encourage my player to play with emotion, don't play emotionally. And they'd say, well, what do you mean? And I'd show them clips. I'd show them clips of big time successes or failures and people playing with emotion versus people reacting emotionally due to the circumstances. We can't always dictate the circumstances. We always have an opportunity to have ownership of our reactions to the circumstances. Um, and what I took upon myself, I need to lead by example. You know, when we're playing a ball game and we give up 12 runs in an inning, we make three errors, three pitchers get bombed. I got to make three pitching. They're looking down there. They're looking at who's holding the wheel. They're looking at how I react. When a player makes an error, when a guy strikes out, you don't think players on the bench are looking at that manager to see how you react because they want to know what you're doing when, when they make a mistake. So I always felt it was important to try and model the behavior emotionally that I hope to instill in others. And then by the same token, I've been thrown out of 64 games, which is 13th all time in Major League Baseball. And that's a whole nother story. So in the same way for my children, I don't want my children to have a bunch of memories where they saw me in the, in the, in the kitchen yelling at Carla. Hey, Clint, can you just, you don't have to go into the whole story. But, you know, I never managed a baseball team. I'm going to help manage my seven-year-old boys baseball team kind of regrettably, but that's a story for another day. Um, uh, regrettably, that's not even the right word. But grudgingly is the right word. And, and uh, um, But when I watch managers lose their shit, uh, I'm often wondering how much of this is intentional and how much of this is they are actually hijacked emotionally. If you talk, I think you said like 63 or however many times, what percentage of those are like, you know what, this is what's needed for our team, or this is needed intentionally and how much of it is actually, um, reactionary. Can you get, can you give us some insight into that? Yeah. I mean, I don't have a pie chart developed for you, but I do get this question asked quite frequently, especially since I've been out of the game. And I didn't even know I was 13th all time until I was brought up in a big fundraiser. I hold out here for my daughter. Oh my um, and the M's, the sideline reporter for the Rockies came out and said, Hey, by the way, and you know, replay today, nobody's going to pass it. You don't get thrown out hardly anymore. So there were times I went out to get tossed. I wanted the crowd back engaged because they weren't. I want my players attention because we didn't have it. I wanted to raise the thermostat. You know, there's times when you need to be a thermometer and just report the temperature. And there's times you need to set the climate. Uh, so there were times I went out calculated. And here's the bad part of it. And sometimes, because I used to swear when I, you know, there was a period of time where I swore at the, the umpires too, you know, a baseball player. And I'm not going to say it's okay. And it's because of the, no, I did. It's because of who I was at the time. About the last 30 times I got thrown out, I never said a, I never said a swear word. So I've shown myself it had nothing to do with the, an F-bomb or it has to do when you tell an umpire, your, Y-O-U apostrophe R-E. That's when they take it personal. That's usually when you get flipped. There were times when it was just a difference of opinion. So some were calculated just for the response. Now, some were, were calculated the fact that, no, we're getting hosed and they need to know that I just, I'm not putting up with it. And we're going to get on TV because that's one thing I would share with them every once in a while. They'd say, no, 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 you don't, you didn't. I go, first of all, I did see it. You know, we're arguing about whether I saw it, I'm arguing whether you saw it. All I know is we, you and me are yelling at each other and the TV's on us. So something's not working out here right now. To heighten the experience, for my team to know I'm engaged, I'm fighting on their behalf. You know, that term, I have their backs. The home plate has gotten too big. We're not getting calls, they're getting. We're stargazing. I dropped that one on and up. That gets their attention too when you tell them they're stargazing. Certain players get certain strike zones. Certain calls are made for the shortstop that aren't made for your shortstop, whatever it might be. And there was times you just went out there and you get, you get emotionally hijacked, you know, basically because of their response or where they were when they made the call and they tell you they got it right. Now I can tell you there's been plenty of times when I've been out there and, and I've gotten flipped or I didn't get flipped and I went back and I never ran up the tunnel and say, did, I get, did he get it right? Now, if I got tossed, I would go up and I'd say, hey, Roach, our video guy, play that back for me so I can see. I didn't ask what Roach thought. I didn't ask what anybody else thought up there. I just wanted to see it with my own eyes what he saw. And then I, okay, I was right. He was wrong. Or you know what? I was wrong. He was right. But the times I stayed in the game, I never, never wanted to know. I didn't want that to sway me one way or the other. Well, you know, I've been out there three times and he's right every time. Maybe I'm just having, no, 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 no. Guts, instinct, 
let the game be the game. Um, the other funny part is the one time when I really had to ratchet it down is I came home after an altercation with an umpire. I got thrown out. First of all, when I get thrown out, Maddie, our 20-year-old, she's a special needs adult now. She was born with a birth defect. But when dad got thrown out, Maddie lost her shazit. <laughs> and I mean, it was bad. Christian might not even know I got thrown out from time to time, but he was at home one night. I got thrown out early. I come home and I have like about an hour window in the morning with my kids before they would go to school. And Maddie went first and Christian says, Hey dad, we need to talk. He's five years old. He's six years old. I'm like, okay. He goes, Hey, you got thrown out last night. I go, yeah. Yeah, I know. He goes, dad, while you both were yelling at each other, I kind of understood. And then dad, he stopped. And dad, you kept yelling and you just kept yelling and you just kept yelling. He goes, dad, you look like an idiot. He wasn't saying anything. Do you know he may have kids like you have kids? And what do you think his kids were thinking while you're just bullying him and yelling? At him? <laughs> I mean, I went from 6'3", 250 to about three foot six and about 12 pounds. I mean, my kids shrunk me in my own house. And I just went, that was the day I said, you know what? I'm not swearing at those guys anymore. Plus my kids said, dad, you can, you know, lip sync. We can read your lips. We know what you're saying. Rah, 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 rah. Well, I'll I tell you, you don't, you don't have to manage a professional baseball team to get shrunk by your, I have a six-year-old and seven-year-old and certainly my six-year-old daughter shrinks me pretty much every day. It's a daily occurrence in our house. Uh, you mentioned Maddie uh, and what I don't have is, uh, uh, you know, a daughter with special needs. Um, what have you learned from her through, throughout? I think you said she's 20 throughout, throughout her 20 years on this planet. It's, it's been in its own way, a magic carpet ride, man. It's been incredible. There's been hard days. There's been days we've cried sad. Then there's been days we laugh so hard we cry. There's watched her do things we never thought she would do. In some ways, it's like a normal average child. Um, but in other ways, it's not. It's not even close. Um, you got to find balance. She's got a brother that's two years younger. We got to find time for Christian. The whole house can't revolve around Maddie's needs and abilities or disabilities and therapies and lack thereof. Um, the biggest blessing uh, that Maddie has gifted us with, God has gifted us with through Maddie, is my wife and I have learned how to stand in a gap for one another and to have each other's back and actually love each other unconditionally. And I wish I could tell you, oh, Brian, I'm such a good husband that we would have gotten there on our own way. And, you know, I've been married three times. I got it all figured out now. I jokingly tell Carla all the time, she's much smarter than me. She's only been married once. <laughs> I've been married 23 years. Um, but Maddie got us in that place where, you know, unconditional love is real. And there's certain things Maddie can't do. And there's certain things Maddie will never be able to do. Uh, but there are things Maddie can do. And how do we play to those? Um, and I watched my wife. The biggest lesson I learned from her was, you know, every two weeks I got to tap out, Brian. Oh, got to go on the road. I, I'm, I mean, there was no guilt because I have to go. It's what I do. It's my job. You can watch me on TV. Well, when I tried to retire for those two years, I got to watch my wife every day. She was doing that for the 17 years that I managed. <laughs> she never tapped out. You know, she might find a space here or there, but that commitment, that unconditional love, that mother's heart, that all that wrapped up in one to watching her perform or just out of love and meet needs and, and be there. In the two years I was home, it blew my mind. I looked at her in a different way than I'd ever looked before. And it was glowing before, but I mean, this now it's just like, oh my gosh, she did all this all the time. Um, and then Maddie, I, I didn't try and make up for lost time, but then I, you know, my word for this year is grow. I do a word, you know, every year, one word, and it's a thing. And I used to do it with my coaches, but I want, I don't want to be a grumpy old man. I don't, I want to, I mean, I tried, tried to pull pork the other day. I mean, whether it's carve a turkey, whether it's show up for Maddie in different ways and do things I can take off the table. My wife didn't have to do more because, you know, when I was home the two weeks, I did, I functioned in the morning. I'd, I'd give her her shots. I'd feed her, make breakfast. I'd do this, but I'd always get a, a break. I'd always get a break. It's interesting. You mentioned the word grow. Uh, I, got a grad degree in sports psychology in 2011. And so we're in 2023. So 
the last 12 years or so, I've built my private practice and focused on growth. And so each word, if you look at where my focus was, it was some version of growth. Um, and this year I, I, I changed it and really focused on more sustain. And so the word sustain for me is, you know, my practice is where I want it to be. I'm doing the work I want to be doing. Uh, I'm good. Uh, that doesn't mean I'm still not growing and learning, but I think from a focus standpoint, I, if I keep focusing on growth, I'm not sure it will be sustainable. And so for you, how do you manage your own desire to grow or to learn and make sure that you're not over-indexing on that um, at the exchange of other things that you care about in your life? You know, I establish priorities. I set boundaries and there's areas I need to grow. And it's just because I didn't grow. I retarded my growth by having all the built-in excuses that I had over years. You realize what it's like for a 62-year-old man to start making his own flight schedule? Uh, I mean, I had a traveling secretary since I was 20. Um, frequent flyer numbers. I mean, all, all this, you know, I, I'd have them. i just give the people my number. Everybody, everybody managed things for me. Well, my wife has been wonderful because once I come home, I said, hey, would you? She'd go, no. Would you? No. Would you? No. You need to learn how to do this. You need to figure this out. You know, you have time. She was steadfast in loving me enough to tell me no, which is a complete sentence, which I didn't really realize either. Um, and yes, I love you, but no, I'm not helping you. And you will appreciate it when you get on the other side of this. And I have appreciated. There's still things I need to, to learn. The, the biggest growth I needed was I didn't want to look at everything just from my perspective. I at least wanted to have understanding of others' perspective. I put together a Mount Rushmore group, which is four men and women that I call every two weeks. It's kind of like my board of directors to help me with my sustainability and my direction and my navigation and whether it be personal or professional. And those names have changed over the years just because of age, death, me looking for a different lens, somebody else getting too busy. Um, and now I've incorporated a 20 something, a 30 something, a 40 something and a 50 something. Don't need a 60 something, I am that. I don't know what it's like to be 25 now. And you know what, as crazy as it gets sometimes to listen, there's things that, you know what, that's how they look at it. And the best benefit for me in the past 10 years, maybe a little longer, is to understand perception is important. I used to think your perception, if it didn't match up to mine, didn't count. And my, I was going to win you over to mine and tell you why mine was right and yours was wrong. And I've learned over time that just by listening to others, if I could just shut up, use my eyes and use my ears, they will tell me who they are, what they are, what they like, what they don't like if I give them the time. And then I will be able to manage or help them be the best version of self because I'll know what makes them tick or I'll know what they're good at or their passions are. You know, it's like going to a coach that doesn't like to watch video. You know, he's a touch and field coach. He wants them on the field. It's kinetic learning. Make that guy go in and watch video for an hour and a half. Nails on a chalkboard. He'll do it because I'm telling him to because the title he'll respect. Is he going to be any good at it? Probably not. So I learned how to match up skills with people based on their personality traits and, and what made them tick. So for me, the growth is just staying engaged and I'm aware and I'm not just, how boring would it be to have 10 of me on a staff? It would be horrible. One of me is more than enough on anything, a board of directors, a staff, and I need to find my seat where my skill set does show up, but I need to have other seats at the table that other skill sets are way better than mine in those areas. And that I can sit back, not only listen and learn, but then trust them and let them go do their thing. You've mentioned balance a few times in our conversation today. And I started my career focused on sports. Um, I still get phone calls from athletes. I got a, I got contacted by a major league baseball team the other day saying, Hey, we're looking for somebody to help us with sports psychology. Um, early on, I, I learned that if I was going to, do sports psychology, I either was going to go the private practice route or hook up with like a baseball team, which fortunately there are actually a lot of jobs and opportunities today, certainly more so than when I first started. 
And as I started doing more sports, I realized it was going to be really hard for me to be all in in the sports world and, and be all in at home. And I grew up with a dad who built his own business, successful entrepreneur, and was home for dinner and, and coached our teams. So I saw the pathway to do it in the business world. The people I admired most in the sports world, I was having a hard time seeing it. Um, the nature of your sport, 162 games a year. I mean, it's just a lot. Is there is there a pathway for, let's just focus on baseball managers to, we could use the word balance. Some people reject that word. It doesn't really matter what word or distinction you want to use, but is there a pathway given the environment of baseball to really be an all-star at as a manager and an all-star uh, in, in your personal life? As, let's just use as being a husband and a dad. It's pretty much built for failure if you don't come up with boundaries and you don't come up with a, regu- you know, a, a certain pathway to follow and a discipline in which to adhere to. Um, it becomes self-consuming. A transformational leader or service ship leader, you always can find another challenge, another person to help, another cause, another better way to do it. When do you turn it off? When do you put up, you do not disturb sign. Yeah, because a transactional Um, leader, it's actually way easier to manage. Hey, I'm going to do my job and then I'm going to be done. I'm not carrying the weight. If someone gets a DUI or they're going through a divorce or they lost a baby or like, no, like that's not my job. Go see a psychologist for that. Um, My job is to come in, put you in the right position. Your job's to make the play in the field and to get us hits and wins. You're, you're, you're spot on. And I will tell you that I've grown to admire some men that had careers in managing just like that. The sad part is to see how it ends. Mm. Lonely. Because so, why, why, why? They never developed any relationship. Nobody cared about them when they were done managing. Nobody called back. Nobody stayed in touch. Nobody. What are you going to polish your trophies? How much time you're away from home? I, there's no telling what those relationships can be like at times. Sometimes when people are away so much, you know, the relationship works, make it put back in the same house. It doesn't work at all. How do the kids feel coming up with a absentee father and now you're home or they've watched you do all this and all these people talk about how great you are and they, they know who you are at home and it's a whole different cat. Um, I actually had one manager, I mean, an illustrious career say, to me in a very transparent, vulnerable situation, I wish I would have enjoyed any of it. There was never, it was a task. Okay, I won this, we went, now it's next, next, next. So that is not to downplay the fact that the one man I I have admired that seemed to have the best touch and feel for it on those sides was Joe Torrey. It didn't happen to him overnight abusive father him and his brother frank were you know physically beating his kids i mean the way he grew up the the, the failures he had early in his manager illustrious playing career and then as a man not, not working at all not being good da, 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 and then you go to the yankees and bam however the humility the true success the people that are really successful you, you see the one superpower that they have for God is humility um, but I've known many on the other side. I've known a few on the, the right side that actually embraced it, leaned into it, knew it wasn't defining, knew it wasn't who they were. It was what they did. Yes, they shared in success. Yes, that was cool. But they had a place to go to at the end of the night with people that loved them or they had a community to go to with family or friends. Um, I There was times when I had transactional coaches and I I don't call them. The men that impacted me, I stay in touch with. Whitey Herzog, Davey Johnson. I stay in touch with those guys. Um, you know, the, the people that I've had players. I was on the phone with Andrew McCutcheon two days ago. Stay on the phone with Todd Helton. Um, I just, I know that when it all becomes about the, the ring, it doesn't work well for me. I become obsessed. I'm a man of addictions. 24, if you read my bio, you Google me up. 24 years sober. Okay? 
23 years happily married, those numbers make sense for the reason I got sober. I'm a man of addictions. I have to set boundaries. If When I was early on, I, I got to go manager, manager, manager. And before you know it, I'm looking around. And if you think you're leading and you look behind and nobody's there, all you're doing is taking a walk. And, and it's a lonely walk. So that's when I kind of flipped my switch and said, you know what? I just want to grow boys into men, men into leaders. And I, and I want to put people in the best, best situations I can help put them into so they're the best version of themselves. And let's see what happens. Is there any addiction that you currently have that's positive for you? That's positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I get up in the morning and I have quiet time. Um, and I don't have to have it every morning. There's days when, you know, I actually employ the Sabbath. I do a lot of work, so not social media. I text and I email. I'm not on, my, my kids will laugh because I always tell them, no, I'm not going on Snapface. No, I'm not <laughs> going on Instagram. I'm not messing with that TikTok box or tanker box. Or I, They just go, dad, you're, you know. I'll tell them I'm going on the line, you know, based on the movie, just makes them, makes them freak out. That 25 year old on your board of advisors is failing miserably. It sounds well, like it's just well, not working. But the you. point being, I get what I need to get done, but on Sundays, I don't, the phone is a paperweight. I've actually done that since the flip of the new year. It was one of my things. I just needed to take Sunday completely off. There was nothing I was going to do on Sunday other than be with my family or, or whatever, but I find times and I set boundaries. It's not all checking the boxes because I used to be the guy, Brian, that if I, I had an itinerary, you know, I had the, uh, gosh, what was the famous folder company, uh, date book, Franklin, I had a Franklin planner, man. I had three of them, you know, and if something was on there, okay, it's going to get checked before the day's over, before I hit the bed. And if I do something that I forgot to write down, I would write it in and then check it off after I've done it. Now, how, what, that's just genius, isn't it? That's just so silly. Now I have the ability to improv, to be spontaneous. My wife and I have talked about this, but there are certain things I do because they make me feel connected. They, they give me peace and they, they give me a sense, of, a sense of connection. You said earlier, you said for the last three years, I've done podcasts, I've gotten into listening to them. Um, and I've learned a lot. When I was managing, I felt like I didn't have time for that because I was all in focused on the job. I felt like I had to be in it, so to speak. As you replay your experience as a manager, would you have benefited from quiet time? Would you have benefited from going on podcasts uh, and learning or, or sharing? Would there have been a benefit to doing those things back then? Or is that beneficial for you now in a way that's different than it would have been back then? I've had quiet time for a long time since I've been so. It's been part of my recovery. I find quiet time at AA meetings. Um, an AA meeting, uh, other than a dugout, an AA meeting is the most comfortable place I go because in life you'll go through situations and you become aware of it. I think when you battle an addiction and you hopefully come out the other side, people say, well, I know what you're going through. And I said, okay, so have you ever had an addiction? Well, no. But you know what I'm going through and you've never had alcohol. No. You don't know what I'm going through. I'm sorry, you don't. It's like, you know, the, the guy's never been divorced. Well, I know what you're going through. Have you ever been divorced? Well, no, but walking in those shoes, being on that path, AA room, I go, they know what I'm talking about when I share. I know what they're talking about when they share. I know the collateral damage we've done. I know the victories we've had. I know how much life makes sense now versus it just being chaos. You know, all we tried... <laughs> I used to call some of the things I did when I was playing athletic chaos is all I was doing. It wasn't regimented athleticism. Um, so there's quiet places and pockets of time. I used to go to the dugout 35 minutes before game time because I would be the only one in the dugout. And for 15 minutes, it was my place. Hmm. It was my little sanctuary. I'd watch them line the field. I could smell the hot dogs. I could hear the hustle of the fans start to trickle down. I could smell the grass. I was the only manager. I did the 17 years that was in the dugout 35 minutes before the game because I would look in the other dugout all the time. And that's not to make me better than them, less than them. It's just what I found time to kind of regulate before I got into the games. As far as putting more into my day back then, no. I needed to be home when I needed to be home. And when I got to work, there was things I needed to do. And the last thing I needed to be doing at work, I felt, was to be on a podcast 
I needed to be preparing, representing the organization, whatever that entailed that day. I learned something from, you know, a mental skills coach, a motivational speaker. And there's a couple of them that are really good friends of mine, Dr. Kevin Elko, who does a lot of work with college football teams. John Gordon, one of my best friends. But Elk used to tell me, be where your feet are. You, you, Clint, you want to start hunting some, some peace, hunting some, hunting some uh, balance or get your wife's attention, your kid's attention? When you're home, be home. And he meant it. He goes, no, I'm, it's, it sounds easy. It's not. When you're home, be home. You're not thinking about, got to talk to your guy that didn't run the ball out last night. You got to talk to that reliever that you're going to have to release later today that hasn't been very good. No, when you're home, be home. Wherever you are, be where your feet are. And you will start adding value to your life. What do you think of the word retirement? <laughs> um. For me, it's not doing what I used to do, which I didn't realize how much it was. It was a lot. Uh, being a manager of a major league club for over 17 years, I did have an off season. I don't know how these general managers do it. They don't have an off season. Matter of fact, the winter is maybe the busiest time for a general manager in baseball. Um, and it was for me, it was kind of like, think back to my childhood days Saturday when the roadrunner would check in and the, the sheepdog would check in and the coyote I was the sheepdog and I'd check in and then I'd hit it again when I checked out and the day was the day I did that for 45 years in a uniform um, so for me retirement meant truthfully not wearing a uniform anymore so I think that's a, a beautiful place for us to stop uh, before I let you go, I, uh, when I was preparing for this and, you know, I got like 20 more questions that I prepare, but I always, the best conversations, I don't get to the questions that I have prepared. Um, but I, I either read or heard you say on another podcast that your mom used to tell you to give it everything you got. And I'll close by saying, it's clear that you did that, uh, while you're managing. And for me, like, I really appreciate over the last hour, you gave me everything you got. And so and my dad's in quote unquote retirement and I still see him giving it everything he got. And so I think there's something beautiful about it's just, you're not wearing the uniform, but you're still giving it what you got. And I think uh, I want to just thank you for that. And um, if people want to obviously can't follow you on social media, but if, is there, is there a nonprofit you're passionate about or, or something that you want to give a megaphone to, um, that we can sort of plug. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Um, and if there's anything else you want to close with, feel free to do that now. Well, again, you, you could be in my Mount, Mount Rushmore. What age group did you fall into? <laughs> I'm, can I even I'm, ask that? Oh, I, don't, I mean, I'm, I'm 38. So it's, uh, well, feel, my son like... makes me aware of the fact that there's certain questions I, I can't ask him. No, I mean, uh, um, I will never have an issue with that question as no, long as I'm right. <laughs> because 38, I, I just, you have some depth to your question. Obviously we all do research. We all, I read up about you. I, I caught me, you know, I say, Google, my son said you were creeping him. I said, oh, yeah. I'm not creeping him. I said, I'm just checking out. So I familiarize myself a little bit. First of all, when Sherry said, you're good, you were good. Thank you. I mean, that. I mean, that's, you know, that's better than a Yelp sticker. Um, <laughs> Sherry, I hold Sherry. I, I love Sherry. I respect Sherry. And Sherry said, you guys need to get hooked up. I'm in. A um, couple things. Number one, I send out two devotionals six days a week. Not two devotionals. I send out a devotional and an encouragement email six days a week. It comes from different places. Sometimes I write them. Sometimes, you know, on Monday, I use something from the Daily Coach. It's a, it's a blog site. On Tuesday, it's usually something John Gordon or uh, John O'Leary, another guy I read. It could be a win your day from Steve Gilbert. Wednesdays or wooden Wednesdays. Thursdays are James Clear. Three, two, one Thursdays. Fridays, it's usually a free play Friday. I come up. Saturdays, it's with a local boy here that I love. Saturdays with Shenbaum. He's got his own program running. And then I do one for faith-based, you know, different, just different pastors. Um, it's man-proof. It's free and it's easy. It's clinthurdle.com. The website's this big. And then it asks you to submit your preferences. Do you want the devotional? Do you want the encouragement? Do you want both? 
you put in your email address, you're done. Um, it's something I started off with 13 people in 2009. Uh, yeah, Kelly encouraged me to do this. Um, and by the way, Kelly passed um, almost 12 years ago. Um, I was at Fenway Park when it happened, but he encouraged me to keep this up. So it's now over 7,000 people. Wow. Um, but it's just sharing. It's locking arms, man. It's just trying to be there because there's been so many times in my life when it's been lonely, I've been scared or I've been anxious or I've been, there's been fear and somebody, I call them God wanks, somebody showed up and said, you know what, you're going to be all right. Hey, have you thought of this? Why don't we try that? Hey, you know what? Come on. You're all right. You're never as good as you think you are. You're never as bad as you think you are. So that would be one. If anybody out there is looking for a little encouragement, I may be able to help you. And if somebody's looking out there for a devotional that maybe start today, I may be able to help you. The other one is... There's actually, uh, my daughter was born with Prodder Willie Centrum. And I have a, we have a big, huge fundraiser every year. It's inside of two months off. I could eventually send you the link if you wanted to post it. Basically, we're sold out at 175 seats. We hold it here at the golf course. We put it up tents. It looks like the circus is coming to town. And it's like Maddie's prom night. She never got invited to the prom. She's really had maybe one kind of boyfriend. It's been one of those things. And that, this night, she lights up like a Christmas tree. She goes on a Q&A with our MC and makes fun of her dad um, and just shows people, you know, how she's grown based on love and support from others. Um, but I'll send you that link uh, just on the email. But Prader Willie Syndrome, if you want to know what we're dealing with, P-R-A-D-E-R hyphen Willie, W-I-L-L-I. And it's a weird weird birth defect um parts of her will always be 12 we'll, we just can't. we'll certainly plug both we'll get the clinthurdle.com and and it's really easy you just go on his website and boom you'll see a subscribe button i think it's it's pretty dummy proof so all of us that are listening to this podcast uh should be able to do that and then we'll certainly support um the cause as well and then bat around technology is that something you're, you're still involved with i as was well? gonna get to bat around we, we're playing with a thing that <laughs> We're starting to build, uh, we, we've taken BP and turned it into a game. Uh, the gamification of batting practice, it, even in a hitting facility, and it basically came from a conversation a few old men and I were having about the game and the launch angles and hitting and all there. And I just said, okay, I don't want to stay a part of this just complaining and whining. Can we do anything about it? And, you know, one of them said, well, what about batting practice? Anyway, it's developed into an app that we've set it up with hit tracks. We've partnered with hit tracks. We're, we're pushing it out to hitting facilities. Now it's a game you can play in the cage. It's six different games that it's going to help you learn how to hit without us telling you how to hit. And it's the optics, the graphics, the gamification, all of it. We just demoed it at Nashville at the American baseball coaches association. It's we've got a little traction, but it's called bat around. If you Google up bat around two words, bat around, You'll find it as well, and it's it's still in the developmental stages, but we seem to have something that might be a lot of fun for anybody that wants to pick up a bat and swing it. I love it. Well, you can listen to all of our conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. And I use that word begrudgingly or regrettably or whatever it might be. For a long time, I said, if you're not on Twitter, you're ignorant. And for lifelong learners and someone like Clint, I would say Clint would love Twitter. I'm not sure I still believe that. I'm definitely not as convicted on it. I feel as though by every single day that I age, I am pulling back on some of my statements about how great Twitter is, but I am still there at Brian Levinson um, for now. And then LinkedIn is the other place that I actually like really enjoy being. And Clint, if you ever wanted to be uh, somewhere on social media, LinkedIn's got, and I think it's getting better. I think it's an interesting place. So I, I'm there at Brian Levinson. It's just a great place to connect with people. Um, but this has been a blast. Thanks to Sherry for connecting us. Uh, I'm looking forward to more conversations with you and learning about what you all are doing with the Rockies and, and consider me a fan. I'm based in Washington, DC. So um, I think our baseball team uh, is going to have a ways to go here for, for the next few years. So I've got room and space to watch some other teams and, and cheer them on as well. But, um, you know, I really appreciate this conversation. It's been, it's been a blast. So thanks for coming on. Brian, thank you.
pleasure getting to meet you. Really cool. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I put together a Mount Rushmore group, which is four men and women that I call every two weeks. It's kind of like my board of directors to help me with my sustainability and my direction and my navigation, and whether it be personal or professional. And those names have changed over the years just because of age, death, me looking for a different lens, somebody else getting too busy. Um, and now I've incorporated a 20-something, a 30-something, a 40-something, and a 50-something. Don't need a 60-something. I am that. <laughs>